0: Beyond the the headlines, this is World Insight.
1: Hello and welcome to World Insight with me, Tianwei. China and Canada, the ties between the two countries, dated back well before the establishment of diplomatic relations in the 1970s. Many analysts believe the two highly complementary economies can cooperate in many fields including trade and climate change. Jean Chrétien is the former prime minister of Canada. Recently, I have a talk with him while he's traveling with his family in Beijing. Here is his insights. Mr. Prime Minister, what a pleasure to see you once again in Beijing.
0: I'm very, very happy to be back.
1: So who have you met? Uh, what's your observation of uh, China today?
0: Well, you know, it's still growing. I'm very impressed by you know, the architecture of all these big new buildings, and I'm impressed by the quality of the architecture. We went through a lot, isn't it? I, and a lot, You know, I came here uh, many, many years uh, ago. The first time it was in 1994. As prime minister with Team Canada, I was here with 500 uh, business people and the premier of the provinces. It was uh, the beginning of a very good relation that I developed with China. When I came here, the economy of no, of China was smaller than the Canadian economy. Now it's 10 times bigger after 30 years, or 29 years, rather, and, uh, yeah, and still growing. And, uh, you know, China has become uh, the second biggest economy in the world and still growing. and. Uh, They're taking a bigger place in the world, and it's good. But with that, there is always a little bit more problems because uh, it's the nature of things. But uh, I think that uh, it is in the best interest of the West and the people of the East to work together. Because the last 30 years, the development of the East, like China, has created a lot of wealth around the globe and we all have benefited from that.
1: How would they work together? Do you have your advice?
0: Uh, we have to talk and we don't have to pay too much attention to uh, some of the stories that are written by you guys of the press. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you want to have good news, so sometimes there are a lot of exaggerations in the stories and we need dialogue, we need to meet each other and we can disagree, you know, we, we disagree all the time in in life <laughs> with our co-workers, sometimes within the family and but when you keep your cool and uh, you're reasonable, you find a solution. What is reasonable? But it's depending on the problem. I think that uh, we have to accept the reality. The reality is the world is changing. Uh, the growth and the populations are more on the east side of the globe than on the west side of the globe. And it's normal because there are a lot more people living here and in other nations like India and so on. So we, uh, but we have better communication, it's easier now. You know, my predecessor, Pierre Trudeau, came once. For me, I met 17 times the president of China and always had good personal relation with them. Are we
1: lacking these kind of uh, personal interactions?
0: Probably. and uh, Why? Things are moving too fast. And we're probably, uh, you know, the nature of the people in charge too. Uh, in any country, the leader makes a difference. Uh, sometimes the individuals have a different perspective. But, If we look, we have to look at the future, the long term. And the long term makes it very clear to me that Canada and China, we are complementary. We have the resources, we have the land, and you need resources, but you have the people. So we have to help each other.
1: I want to let you help us to do a reality check today how would you describe the general change that we are experiencing
0: the technology is moving so fast that it's difficult to cope with that but we have to adjust when i started in politics you were not born in 1956 i was already involved in politics in canada as the president of the students in my political party and, you know, we didn't have a TV, we didn't have a lot of radio, uh, the communications were always by new sprint Things were moving much slower, but the problems were the same. And we found a solution at that time based on the resources and the capacities we had. Now the resources are different, the capacit- capacities are enormous, but Human nature adjusts to these changes as we had to adjust. When I look back, sometimes I remember that I felt that we were in front of impossible situations. And when I look back, I realize that it was not that complicated. But when you face, on a daily basis, a problem facing you, you think it's enormous. But you have to look left, you have to look right, you have to look above or underneath, and you find a solution. And you're over the wall and life keeps going. Now China and the United
1: States has become, their relationship has become the biggest concern for many around the world. I would assume also for many in Canada. So what do you make of this interesting relationship these two are having?
0: But it's a new era. Thirty years ago, China, Chinese economy was smaller than the Canadian economy. Now it's ten times bigger. China has become, you know, the biggest player vis-a-vis the United States. So it's not the same situation, but it is the interest of both to make progress together. Of course, there's problems always exist.
1: So what is the biggest problem do you see they're having right now?
0: The preoccupation that is everybody has—they want to maintain a good economy on both sides—and some people get nervous about the development. Sometimes uh, one of the two parties think that the other one is not fair. Sometimes it is not very accurate. But if you any, anyway, if you have a problem, you have to sit down and to discuss the problem. And if you're candid and fair and honest, you have to explain why you have to do something. So you're under local pressure, local needs, that sometimes get in contradiction with the needs of the other. And it's just because of, you know, take the climate change. Now, it, there's no bother about it. What happened here, or what happened in Canada or United States, affect climate change of the world. And if we don't do what is needed, we all pay the same price.
1: There is always the issue of trust. Some suggest without that, it's very hard for them to work together, even on the global issues. Of course, they're trying,
0: it seems. I have to tell you, you always feel, feel that it is very difficult and it's I you have to move. You have to face the reality. You cannot sit back and do nothing. If you have a problem, you discuss and you find a solution. But I make the comment at times that in public life, to fill a hole, sometimes you have to dig two more. (laughs) So in public life, you're always digging to find enough to fill the new hole. And it's never ending. We think after, the oh, now we're all right. Bang! Two days later, new problems occur and still you're preoccupied. But when you're in public life, you know, you're in that to face reality. And the great pleasure is to participate in finding the solution. And for me, I have the pleasure because I'm not a kid anymore. And I was in public life 40 years and I have 20 years since I quit. So I have a lot to look back. And, you know, and it's a lot of pleasure to realize that you are involved in finding solutions at that time. How were you
1: trying to find solutions despite there was no or lack of trust?
0: But you know, there is always people who, you know, they think that's a lack of trust. It's not necessarily that, it is the problems and the interests are not the same for one of the two parties. And, uh, and when you want to solve the problem the way you think it should be solved, And the others don't think the same thing. It's not a lack of trust. It might be a loss of understanding of the nature of the problem. And the desire for both sides to find a solution help a lot.
1: What does it take to understand? I remember Confucius once said, uh, you know, when you hear, you know it. When you see it, you uh, believe it. But when you do it, you understand it.
0: You know, if you have the knowledge of the situation and you face it, you're in good position. You cannot run away from a problem. You have to face it and recognize it and look for a solution. And both sides are looking for solution. They don't want, they all want to have a good relation. Nobody wants a, ba- a bad relation. Nobody wants war. You, You, someone get trapped into a war, but I don't know a lot of leaders who get up in the morning and say, I'd like to have a war. No, they all want to have peace, normally.
1: You brought your great-grandson.
0: Yes, I'm here with my great-grandson. I'm here today, we are four generations together.
1: (laughs) How sweet. And
0: the great-grandfather, the the other great-grandfather of my great-grandson is the one who started the. Canada China Business Council. And now the president of Canada China Business Council is my own grandson.
1: Amazing.
0: So, and uh, so the two families are related now. And and so my family have been involved with China since a long time.
1: So do they ask you about what should I do when they are facing with difficult questions? Did they ask you for advice?
0: Oh, but they do but they have to do their own business you know for me i'm there to give advice but uh, there is a time when they have to be on their own and they are on their own and doing very well and for me i'm there if they need me and i'm lucky i'm still in good shape and uh, i very happy that i will be 90 in 2 months and uh, congratulations i'm happy to be here to be able to come back i hope so
1: now, if you look at China-U.S. relations, we're heading for APEC, the Asia-Pacific Economic Leaders' Meeting. Canada is also a party in the Economic Leaders' Meeting. You were there.
0: I was here in Shanghai when it was presided by uh, the President of the day. Yes, indeed. So, uh, do you have some best wishes? Uh, it's always a good dialogue, very useful that we know each other. It's one advantage of today, we have an occasion to know each other, and these meetings are very good if you take advantage of it. It was a good occasion to develop you know, good rapport with uh, my colleague at the APEC meeting. It's important that they have this meeting and have a good dialogue. And not being afraid to speak frankly. That's very important. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, Mr. Prime Minister, for your time.
0: My pleasure. Thank you very much. All the
1: best to you and happy 90th birthday in two months.
0: Good, good. And I'm happy I'm here with my great-grandson, my grandson, my daughter, my son-in-law. So four generations in China together. It's very rare and it's a very, very happy occasion.
1: What do you want them to see the most?
0: Oh, you know, we're busy Especially the nine-year-old. no, no, he's visiting around here. He's very busy. He went to the wall and, uh, you know, he's visiting something else. And <laughs> my daughter will make sure that he see as much as possible.
1: That's wonderful. Thank, Thank you, you so Thank much. You. Thank you. Still to come, Edwin Frank founded the New York Review Books classic series, which reintroduces out of print books from around the world to the English speaking audience he discusses the resilience and imagination captured in the 20th century Chinese literature with me earlier. Let's listen to his talk.
0: Beyond the the headlines, this is World Insight.
1: Hello and welcome back. This is World Insight with me, Tian Wei nowadays with a wealth of modern literacy works on china's classical heritage and modern life modern and contemporary chinese literature is poised to help reshape the global cultural landscape these books not only convey powerful traditional chinese stories and heritage but also influence what the world reads and ultimately what people care about with these in mind i talked to edwin frank on the significance of Chinese traditional culture exchanges and also the Chinese literature classics into English language. Frank is editorial director of the New York Review of Classic series, or has published works of many Chinese writers, including Guo Fei's acclaimed work, Peach Blossom Paradise. Let's listen in. This is a series of classics that you have rediscovered And among them, there are many Chinese names from ancient China to contemporary China.
2: I am, among other things, also a poet, and I suppose my first introduction to Chinese culture was through Chinese poetry, which in some sense, um, at the beginning of of modern poetry in English is Ezra Pound's response to poetry in Chinese, Mm. which I, I think Chinese experts often say it gets everything wrong, but in some sense it helped to uh, to shape modern poetry in America and England, in English in general, uh, around, uh, uh, around images of the sort that, that are, are so frequent in Chinese poetry. Mm. So I think perhaps the first Chinese book that I published um, in the classic series was a reprint of a wonderful book from the 1960s by this British scholar, A.C. Graham, his translation of Poets of the Late Tang, which starts with the late poetry of Du Fu and uh, also Li Shangyin, a, a whole range of poets. Mm. It's a wonderful book, um, both because the translations are beautiful, but also because Graham does a very good job explaining how differently Chinese poetry works from English poetry.
1: I know you yourself is a poet, so how differently?
2: Well, something that was very interesting for uh, an American reader of poetry was that, again, partly influenced by Pound, one saw Chinese poetry as a kind of uh, series of, of limpid and transparent and simple images. And Graham made it clear that What works at one level as a direct image of physical reality, at another level uh, works as a historical illusion so that the poems are suffused with history as well as um, imagery.
1: Besides that, you're also publishing works related to contemporary China, to modern China. Elaine Chang's work, for example.
2: I often say that for me, she is the the great discovery of, of the 20 some years that I have spent working, uh, editing the classic series. Mm-hmm. Um, she is, she of course lived in the United States for a, a long time, but she wasn't really well published in the United States. And I discovered her in a reference work. Uh, I think it was the Oxford book of the Oxford Encyclopedia of Literature in English translation. And perhaps it was even in a footnote where it said that her story, the, which is translated, she translated as The Golden Kang, was the equal of Thomas Mann's Death in Venice, and I can't remember, maybe Kafka's Metamorphosis, I don't know what. But in any case, what was interesting to me, th- these are standard comparisons of a great, sto- a great novella. Mm-hmm. But I had yeah. never heard of it. And I went to the library at Columbia University, the East Asian Library, and, uh, and went into, really, I had to go deep into it to find uh, this anthology in which this translation she had done of her own story was included mm. and was immediately uh, struck by what a wonderful writer this was, a writer who, again, beautiful imagery, but extraordinarily filmic sense of time.
1: You know, just look at her life as a writer and as a woman could very mm-hmm. well in a way, inform your readers about what mm-hmm. China was like and went through, you know, for the past mm-hmm. uh, 30 years uh, during modern China, you know, the early 20th century. Um, mm-hmm. and, and what about the others?
2: Yes. Well, I mean, I'm always interested in, in dealing with the foreign literature in trying to get a picture of how that literature has existed over time and into our time. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, having Ge Fei, who is writing about uh, both historical novels like Peach Blossom Paradise, but also uh, novels of contemporary life in in Beijing, like uh, 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 Invisibility Cloak.
1: These works are part of your, what you call, the New York Review of Books Classic Project, in which mm-hmm. you try to rediscover all the quote-unquote long-buried classics. So tell me how you do this, because I remember you describe uh, you know how to let people know about these works by saying i don't want to promote them as the quote-unquote uh oh the sex in the city book because they're not mm-hmm. and the readers are smart tell me more about that how did you you know explore these ideas
2: well it's of course it's a mainstay of of, Ameri- of american publishing publishing everywhere that you need to Connect a book to some current book to make people take any uh, take an interest in it. They, mm-hmm. It's done all the time, yeah. and um, and of course with contemporary books there is some legitimacy to that, saying that this book is like that book, and even of course uh, past books. But readers are smart, and readers know that that you know a book from 1920 is not going to be the same thing as a very very current book like mm-hmm. Sex and the City. Finding out what is, I mean it's it's interesting. I, I mean I've said at a certain point that I want the books to be powerfully irrelevant in that kind of pushing back against the notion that books should, books from the past should immediately reproduce our ideas of the present. There's a wonderful moment in a great book from the past, which I don't publish, Nadezhda Mandelstam's memoir, Hope Against Hope. She was the wife of the Russian poet, Osset Mandelstam, where uh, she describes the Russian poet Anna Akhmatova saying, what do you want? And she says, I want a place where you'll find none of us. She's mm-hmm. fed up with, with just hearing all the chit chat and talk and the, the opinionation of the moment. And so there is a way in which work from uh, more or less recent past to the deep past can surprise us and, and astonish us out of our, um, our preconceptions and in some ways, set us free to think again. And this, in the case of the classics, I don't want people to think this is something you have to read in the class and have to say, this is good. Mm. I want people to say this is something that raises questions about either books or how we see the world.
1: You, you've been Thank saying, you. Edwin, before I came into the studio, I did a little bit of research. You said you want things that is powerfully irrelevant. I like mm-hmm. that. I think you might have put a lot of thoughts into it before you said that. Tell me more about that, and how is that related to where we are today?
2: It's an interesting time that we are both perhaps more broadly interested in people all over the world than ever before, but we aren't terribly interested or, and I think increasingly aren't terribly knowledgeable about the past. And as a book that I publish famously begins with the sentence, the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. So the past, not only our own past, but the past of, of other other countries and languages past, are other places where we can learn to think differently and think differently about ourselves. And we would not, in our busyness and uh, engagement with the questions of the day, of our day, the things that seem to us immediately relevant, necessarily ask those questions. Mm-hmm. or, And literature can ask them for us and ask us to listen to them.
1: About you, yeah. you also have, have oh. some stories. Tell me about how this you know, cooperation with other publishing houses, particularly from a very different culture now, uh, you know, mm-hmm. even the two countries, if you talk about politics, it could be very different. You know, h- mm-hmm. how does this cooperation about culture, about language, about literature amid a bigger picture of geopolitics, technology, mm-hmm. you know, all the changes that we have today?
2: Well, it's interesting because literature on the one hand, I mean, I think is is a space apart from that. And it's important that there be a space apart from uh, the political and ideological disputes that exist between countries. And, and also the historical, the very, uh, it's not least because it's a place where, in fact, the larger historical origins of those disputes and the human experience that goes into those disputes can be recognized. Uh, And I mean, there's a way in which a book, you know, um, the philosopher Martin Buber talked about the importance of an I-thou, to use an old English word, but an I-you relationship, Mm -hmm. uh, and literature constitutes that relationship and constitutes it across boundaries, even as it Uh, doesn't deny boundaries. It, It also is a record of the very different things that happen to people and countries.
1: That's all the time we have for today. I'm Tian Wei on behalf of the team. Thanks for being with us. Bye for now.